thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, today we're back to our series, Can I Trust My Bible? And uh, we've been doing that for about a month or so. We took a break last week to uh, talk about Thanksgiving. But today, uh, I've entitled our message, Do We Have the Right Bible? Now, this is, might be a, a topic that you've actually never heard in a sermon before, and I really questioned whether I wanted to spend a full sermon doing this, so I thought, you know what, maybe I'll just jump right to something else and, and talk about this for five minutes. And then I thought, you know what, the attacks on the Bible are intellectual, and this is a part of the intellectual process of how we got the Bible. So if we don't address this issue, which is called canonicity, or how we actually got the specific books of the Bible, it does leave some questions. So I want to talk about a little bit what's been going on behind the scenes. And one of the things that happened was about 15 years ago, a movie came out called The Da Vinci Code, which was a direct attack on this issue. The Da Vinci Code is a book and a movie that undermines Orthodox Christianity. It claims that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and they had a relationship together. They actually had a daughter named Sarah. It claims that the Holy Grail is actually a secret bloodline of Jesus and it involves the Catholic Church in a massive cover-up of all of it. Kevin Miller, who's a pastor and a writer, writes about the danger of this kind of historical fiction because I think it was viewed as under the brand of historical fiction, which it really wasn't. I would say it was more like complete fiction. In an interview published in May 2006, Newsweek magazine asked Tom Hanks, who was the lead actor, how do you soothe the people who consider the story of the Da Vinci Code offensive? That would be people like us. Hanks replied, well, we're all going to keep using the word fiction, 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 fiction. But whatever you think of the Da Vinci Code, you'd have to say that it's a very unusual kind of fiction. In historical fiction, that genre of movies or literature, everyone expects that the novelist is going to play with what's called the foreground. The writer will invent minor characters and make up the dialogue. I even do that in sermons sometimes. You know, sort of insert things, and you know when I'm joking. That's what historical fiction is. But according to historian Paul Meyer, you don't change the basic historical events or mess with the identity of established people when writing fiction based on history. If you want to put Henry VIII in your novel, go ahead, but you can't make him an Irish chambermaid. He has to be the king of England and he has to have six wives. You don't mess with that. You say, but who cares? Why can't Dan Brown, the writer, have a little fun? Well, let me put it this way. And he talks about the civil rights movement in America, so forgiving me for, forgive me for using an illustration from the evil empire to the south. I'm an American, I can say that. I'm joking around. This year I toured the Civil Rights Museum in Birmingham, Alabama, and in the 1960s they called the city Bombingham because so many black leaders and white sympathizers there were having their homes firebombed and their children killed. I saw photographs of the laundry trucks that would not mix the laundry from black people and the laundry from white people. I held the cold iron bars of the jail cell in which Martin Luther King Jr. sat 
beaten and alone and wrote to his critics the letter from a Birmingham jail, one of the most profound and important letters in all of American history. Now suppose someone was writing a novel about a Harvard professor who's studying the civil rights movement. And in this novel, by decoding various symbols, like they do in the Da Vinci Code, the professor discovers that Martin Luther King was becoming desperately afraid of the frets on his life. So on the day of the giant march on Washington, when 200,000 people gathered in the largest demonstration in the history of Washington till that time, King never went to the march. Instead, he stayed holed up in the corner of his hotel room, whimpering like a baby. Meanwhile, J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, had infiltrated the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in order to try to spy on King, and using an amazingly clever costume, it was Hoover who actually stood on the white marble steps of the Lincoln Memorial and gave the immortal speech, I have a dream. And to cover up this appalling fact, the NAACP began murdering anyone who discovered it, including Bobby Kennedy. Now, if someone published that novel, we would all be outraged because it would cast a slur on Martin Luther King, on the civil rights movement, on the African-American community, on American history, and on America itself. We would say, that may be fiction, but it's stepped over the line. You just can't take real people in history and change major facts about their lives. But in the Da Vinci Code, that's exactly what Dan Brown does to Jesus Christ, not to mention Roman Emperor Constantine, Mary Magdalene, etc. Now, if you think that this is completely new, that this is just modern sort of historical fiction and attacks on the Bible, you would actually be mistaken. Other narratives, other writings do exist from the ancient religious world. Now, I'm going to actually cause some of you to have some doubts before I fix those doubts here, because you may not know that. There are other competing documents from the ancient world. Some are actually very friendly to Christianity. Some are actually completely unfriendly to our faith. And so once you discover those issues, and if you're Catholic background, you know the Catholic Bible has some books between the Old and New Testament called the Apocrypha. Even in Bibles around the world, there are some differences. And so that might destabilize some of you just a little bit, but it does bring up a fair question, do we actually have the right Bible? Now, if the Bible was being written today, we would naturally develop criteria for determining what is true and what should be placed into the Bible. What books can we actually count on? And I suspect one of the things we would look at would be we really want to include books that really come from eyewitness accounts. We don't just want to include any book. We want first-person eyewitness narratives, those should be the most reliable. And in, in fact, if you have many witnesses to an event, we would say that's multiple eyewitnesses, which gives it even greater credibility. One is enough to say something might be true, but if you have 100 or 200 saying something is true and they were all eyewitnesses, it has more credibility. Another thing you would ask would be, if we're putting a New Testament together and we already have an Old Testament, is this, are these new books consistent with what we already know about God? Because assuming that God is in this process of giving us the scriptures, assuming there's some supernatural element there, we want to make sure that what we've accepted as true before is being consistently represented by these new witnesses, or else we'd have to wonder if they're being truthful. 
Are they credible? Is, is there a supernatural nature to anything in the books that we're thinking about accepting into this new, new Testament? Are they claiming themselves to be prophecy? Are there prophecies in them that are fulfilled later? Do they claim to be inspired, etc.? See, all these questions are the same questions that have been asked throughout history as the Bible was put together. The Bible was not simply dropped into our laps from heaven. It would be simpler if it had been, but it was not. Individual books were written and scrutinized by both Jewish Old Testament and Christian New Testament leaders throughout history. And then they made the cut or they did not. But in that, and this might make you a little nervous, there was a human element that I want to talk about today. Can we trust it? Can we trust that we have the right Bible? First issue here is a word called canonization. Canonization is the process of recognizing and validating what is God's word. We don't make something God's word, God makes it his word. But canonization is the human side where we recognize that, where we recognize there are certain characteristics in it. Now the word canon comes from a Greek word, canon. Pretty profound, hey? Eh? And it means a straight rod used as a rule or standard, just like a ruler or a yardstick. A straight rod used as a rule or standard. And rods, even in the ancient days, these cannons were marked in units of length, just like your rulers or your yardsticks are. So a cannon is basically like a ruler or a yardstick. So the canon of scripture is sort of a, a collection of such units or, or marks, if you will. It's what was recognized in history as being canonical, a standard from God. But what standard? What standard? Well, I want to show you three passages in the Bible that talk about God's process in giving us a certain set of uh, sort of accepted books or pieces of literature as coming from God. So these are sort of two of the key passages about inspiration and then another one that Jesus actually stated. Second Peter 1, 20 to 21, actually talks about what I'm gonna say, the process through which uh, books of the Bible were given to us and God's hand in that. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture, become, now remember that phrase, no prophecy of scripture becomes a matter of someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So here what you've got is a, a reference to writings, which he calls prophecy of scripture, writings that God influenced. So Peter is referring to a body of literature, probably the prophets in particular, since he uses that statement. He's writing about a body of literature that's been accepted in the, in the past as coming from God and being influenced by God. 2 Timothy 3.16, more common verse. All scripture, or every graphe, every writing, is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, rebuke, correction, training, and righteousness. Okay, this is the key verse about inspiration. It basically is saying that, again, there's a body of literature which Paul here is calling 
the, the scriptures, graphe simply means writings, but every writing is inspired by God. He's clearly referring to a set of writings, a set of accepted books up to that point and ones that would be written during his lifetime that God not only was in the process of giving to us, God actually guaranteed their accuracy. Every graphe is inspired or God breathed. The implication is, God is in it, it's accurate, it's truthful. Now when you get to Luke chapter 24, Jesus actually refers to the scriptures of his day, so he's looking back on the Old Testament, and Jesus refers to three bodies of literature, which are the three bodies of the Old Testament, three sets of books that were actually accepted in history at different times. Now he spoke to them, this is Jesus, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things that are written about me in the law of Moses, okay, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and the prophets, that's much of the rest of the Old Testament, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, so it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Jesus is referring now to the Old Testament, and he breaks it up into three parts. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And the Psalms probably is just using representatively of a whole category called the writings. So Jesus refers to these three bodies of the Old Testament. So I wanted to say that to say this. Canonization begins with a presupposition. That presupposition or what we have to believe to believe in canonization is this. That certain historic documents have been influenced by God that to get them in their current form, they've been influenced by God. They have a specific character to them because of this. They are recognizable based on specific criteria. They alone are truly sacred, and therefore, because God has inspired them, they belong in the Bible, they have the right to be called God's word. Now. Having said that, I'm going to back up a second. I'm going to make you real nervous here for just a second. But again, save the tar and feathers till after the service. There's always time for that, all right? I would be a Jesus follower without the scriptures being inspired. I don't need an inspired Bible, personally. I believe the Bible has such historic credibility as history books that I would believe the Bible, even if it did not claim internal inspiration. I believe they're accurate history. I believe they contain eyewitness testimony. I believe the manuscript evidence of the Bible has been preserved better than any other ancient texts. We've talked about those things in prior weeks. I don't need inspiration. I don't need it to be God's word. I don't need perfect canonization to be a Christian. I would believe it anyway. But the Bible does claim to be God's word. It does claim that there's a certain character in books accepted as God's word that people throughout history should be able to recognize. So it helps, it's another evidence that we're dealing with God's word. The Bible claims to be from God's hand. People have historically determined what qualifies and doesn't. So the first body of literature, first body of books that we have, is the Old Testament. So the question is, do we have the right Old Testament? Now, I want to just walk through six factors, some of them reasons, to believe that we do. First, the Old Testament is an eyewitness account of God's activity. 
Now, I wanna, I, I've got some really good news for you, and I don't know if this excites you. Just please fake it and look excited you know, in a few minutes here when I break some new news to you that's actually a recent discovery. The New Testament itself, we're not talking about the New Testament, we're talking about the Old Testament, but the New Testament, the last 26 books, were written over about 50 years, from about, you know, the AD 40s or 50s to about AD 95 or 96. So the whole New Testament was written over about 50 years. There was very little time from event to inscripturation, event to writing. And the events covered in the New Testament also cover a very short period of time. You've got less than 100 years of history, mostly just a few decades. The birth narratives of Jesus, then we skip about 20 years, other than his little incident in the temple when he was about 12. You know, you got the birth narratives of Jesus, you skip a couple decades, you've got his three-year ministry, and then the early church. The whole New Testament is basically about 30 years of history. And it was all written very quickly and within a 50-year period. So it's, it's really compressed history written down right away. That's, that's pretty good stuff from a historic standpoint. I mean, that's great stuff. There's no other ancient document like that that we have, you know, the manuscript evidence for. The Old Testament's more complicated. If you want to doubt parts of the Bible and their historic, uh, you know, validity, the Old Testament would be the place to go, not the New Testament. Because the Old Testament covers creation to 400 B.C. That's a lot more history. There's a lot more room for some problems there. New Testament's covering a couple of decades. The Old Testament's covering thousands and thousands of years from creation to 400 B.C. And liberal scholars, and whatever I say liberal scholars, you can boo if you want to. Anyway, liberal scholars, and by liberal, again, we're not talking political liberals, we're talking about people who don't believe the Bible is God's word, they don't believe in the miraculous, they believe this is just the product of man. Those are liberal scholars. They populate seminaries all over the world. They're not Christians. They study the Bible for other purposes. Liberal scholars believe the Old Testament came to us about 600 B.C. at the earliest. So 600 years before Jesus at the earliest. And one of the reasons they claim that is that allows them to allow massive amounts of mythology and legend to develop and to question the literal nature of Old Testament miracles. Just like they don't believe in Jesus' virgin birth or his resurrection, they don't believe in the miracles of the Old Testament. So they say, all this stuff is written down after events and miracles are just put in there to help people believe in religious stuff. None of it's true, it really doesn't matter, therefore ethics today don't matter as well. Those are liberal theologians. But orthodox scholars, people who believe in the Bible as truthful, and God's word, have always believed that Moses began writing this down about 1400, 14 to 1440, 1443 BC, when the Exodus actually took place, when they left Egypt. So they've always believed, hey, Moses was an eyewitness, and from Exodus, the book of Exodus, second book in the Old Testament, all the way to the end of the Old Testament, conservative scholars have said, it's eyewitness accounts. I mean, we have reasons to really believe this stuff. They saw it, they wrote it down. And Moses would have then written Genesis off of other historic documents. Like, people did write down history, they wrote down genealogies, and Moses would have used those historical documents and genealogies to write the book of Genesis, since it predated him. Everything after that, eyewitness. And I want to tell you, again, hide your excitement, 
You're doing a good job of hiding it. Really good job. Even for Canadians. Really good job. We just hit the mother load on this. I mean, this article was just written this year, I believe. Yes, 4-5-2022. New details emerge about Katie Archaeologist's curse tablet that could shake up biblical timeline in the Houston Chronicle. A team of archaeologists with the Archaeological Studies Institute believes it has found a tablet that dates back to 1400 B.C. Institute Director Scott Stripling says the tablet predates the commonly held belief about when the Bible was written by as much as 800 years. If true, this would dispel the theory that the Bible was written about 600 years after the occurrence of some of the first events it describes. This means that the events were written as a first-hand account rather than after the fact. Stripling continued, some scholars believe in something called the documentary hypothesis, which states that the Bible, this is specifically about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that Moses had nothing to do with their writing. It's all some later compilation. So the documentary hypothesis, which states that the Bible was composed hundreds of years apart in different sections and then later redacted, the tablet that they found is a problem for that theory and the idea that Moses could not have written the Pentateuch. This type of writing is more characteristic of the very beginning of the late Bronze Era to Horizon around 1400 BC. For those who want to push the Exodus date way off into the future, this is problematic for them. Houston Baptist University professor Craig Evans said, this tablet contains the oldest text that we know of so far. It correlates with two passages in the book of Deuteronomy where it talks about going up on Mount Ebal, building an altar and cursing the enemies of Yahweh in Israel. The skepticism that nobody could write Hebrew that far back in history is just an unwarranted skepticism. The tablet has major religious and historical implications. If the peer review of Stripling's discovery confirms his claims, it could dispel the liberal idea that the Old Testament was written in 600 BC. All right? Yes, that should excite you. All right. Way to hide that excitement. I know that doesn't seem like a big deal, but you need to understand the Bible is under attack in just about every university in the world, and so this couldn't be historically true. Moses saw it and he wrote it and you have it. That's a huge proof of Old Testament credibility that will not be shared in public universities for 300 years. This is history. It's actual history. And archeology span keeps proving it over and over and over and over, not hundreds of times, thousands of times. It gives prophecy credibility that the writers of the Old Testament were getting information from God predicting events that would take place in the future and then they took place. Not written way after the fact so you could make it up. We have this new information. The Old Testament is an eyewitness account of God's activity. I mean, you've always believed it probably. I've always believed it. But the world doesn't believe it. But archaeology confirms it. Second, Old Testament writings then were compiled over about a thousand years into three sets, law, prophet, and writings. So the Old Testament documents weren't written at once because they cover so much history. So I'm just going to tell you a little bit of how that happened. So you've got the law, the prophets, and the writings. The law is what Moses put in writing, and then you've got the prophets, which are then historical documents after that, and then the writings, which would be the Psalms, the wisdom literature, and others. The oldest Hebrew Bible actually accepted all of this stuff. There weren't a bunch of Old Testament books that were in, in question. I'll talk about a couple that were. 
but there weren't a bunch of Old Testament books. The oldest Hebrew Bible had 24 books. You say, 24 books? My Bible has 39. Yes. But one of those books is like, include, one book makes up the 12 minor prophets. There's only one book of, uh, say, Samuel, one book of Kings. First and Second Samuel were one book. First and Second Kings were one book. So the oldest Hebrew Bible had 24 books, but it includes your whole Old Testament. This, this body of literature has great historic credibility. And another evidence, which I think is pretty important, I always love it when Jesus talks about stuff. Because when I run into Christians who don't believe stuff that's in the Bible, and then Jesus references it, I always say that's the one problem you might have is Jesus. You know, I really just don't like debating Jesus. Doesn't mean I like everything he said, but I don't feel I can win a debate with him. And Jesus talks about the law, the prophets, and the Psalms in the passage I read to you earlier. The Psalms being representative of that third body called the writings. Jesus referred to an accepted body of religious literature as the scriptures. He referred to it as the scriptures. Jesus quoted from 14 books in the Old Testament. Jesus affirmed many of the Old Testament's most controversial figures and events. If you talk to somebody who's skeptical of the Bible and you start talking to them about Old Testament history, I can tell you the kinds of things they're going to question. You know, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, Lot's wife, things like that. Jesus talked about Adam and Eve as the first people. Jesus talked about Noah and the flood. Jesus talked about Jonah and the great fish. Jesus talks about Lot's wife. Jesus talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus saw himself as fulfilling the Old Testament and all the prophecies in it. Interestingly, the enemies of Jesus, the Pharisees, never disputed the Bible that Jesus accepted. Even his enemies all had the same Bible. They also had oral traditions and other commentary, but they accepted the same Bible. Now, the Sadducees were a little different. They didn't believe in some of the elements of, of the Pharisees and Jesus' Bible, and that's why they were sad, you see. Anyway, all right, sorry, forgive me. I know it's so bad. But all the way back to five years old in Sunday school, I can't get that out of my head. All right. Also, the Old Testament books then were accepted in three stages. So soon after they were written, the, the religious community accepted them as God's word in stages because they were written in stages. So the Old Testament law written by Moses, that was all accepted as God's word uh, after the return from exile. The prophets... All were accepted as God's word in about the late third century before Jesus. The writings, some say as late as, uh, as late as the end of the first century, some say much earlier. But as these things kept getting written throughout history, then they would be accepted by the religious community. Criterion for acceptance into the canon of the Old Testament were, were as follows. They need to be composed in Hebrew. Hebrew was the language of Old Testament Israel. And so one of the problems is eventually other books start getting composed in Greek. And at that point, people recognize, well, that means they're too late. They're, they're not a part of Old Testament history. So they're composed in Hebrew. They were used in the Jewish community. They contained Judaism's religious themes. So they you know, had the nature of their about Judaism's God and the religion. They were composed by the time of Ezra because after that point, uh, Jews believed that the Old Testament was done and there was no more inspiration of the scriptures in the Old Testament. And they had the, and the authority of the author. They were typically written by somebody who was recognized as a prophet or a great religious leader. 
They weren't like coming out of the woodwork, you know, but he knew this guy. No, it would be somebody they all knew. Geisler and Nix, a couple of authors who write about this, said, to put it more simply, they were inspired by God, they were recognized by men of God, they were collected and preserved by the people of God. A little overly simplistic, but true. There were some controversial books, just a little bit. Now, if you look in the Old Testament, there are a couple of books that you'd say, well, I don't, how did that make the scripture? One of them is the Song of Solomon, all right? All right, now, I'm not sure how much to get into this, but I find the Song of Solomon to be an extremely interesting book, and I did as a 15-year-old when I was bored in church, find it very interesting. You know, because the Song of Solomon mentions female body parts a lot, and so in the, you know, people look at this and they're like, why is this in the scriptures? So some people said, well, this is an erotic love story written by Solomon. And others would say, and this is one of the reasons it got in the canon, some people believe this is a sort of poetry about the love between Christ and the church or between God and Israel. Personally, it's an erotic love story. I don't see anything about Jesus in the church. It's an erotic love story, but that's okay. It's a part of literature, just like the Proverbs. It's wisdom literature. There's nothing wrong with it. And it also, also elevates the idea of human sexuality and human love. It makes it something that's not inappropriate or unseemly. It elevates the idea that it's a creation from God. But it's an erotic love story. If you want to spiritualize it in something else, knock yourself out. But that's why they struggled to put it into the canon, because of the language of it. We'll just move on now. Esther, in the book of Esther, there is no mention of God in the whole book. So some people thought, well, this can't be, this can't be in the Bible. Well, one of the reasons it's in the Bible is there's no mention of God, and yet it shows how much God is moving behind the scenes. There's intentionally no mention of God to show how the God is so sovereign that even without mentioning his name, he's orchestrating the protection of the nation of Israel and its preservation. And then there's the book of Enoch, which you don't have in your Bible. It's actually included in some canons. It's in the Ethiopic Bible and a few others that are uh, Eastern Bibles, and it's, I believe, in the Apocrypha. I'm not sure about that. I think it is. And we'll talk about more about that later. But my point is this. There is almost no controversy about your Old Testament. All right? Song of Solomon, because the word breast is in there so many times. Esther, because God's, word, God's name isn't in there and Enoch, which is not in your Bible. Do we have the right New Testament? Do we have the right New Testament? Well, the New Testament is a lot simpler. The New Testament also is an eyewitness account from first-generation witnesses and followers. The events are in a very compressed part of history. The, the birth narratives of Jesus, like pregnancy and early childhood, uh, and then maybe one mention when he was about 12, and then you have three years of his adult ministry before he left the planet. And then you've got the early church and a few predictions about the future. Really, the history is covering about maybe 30 years. It's all written down between about 50 and 100 A.D. It's all inscripturated by the end of first-generation eyewitnesses' lives. So it's a lot simpler than the Old Testament. It has incredible historic credibility as well. The criterion for making it into the New Testament canon were similar. Apostolic origin was a book written by an apostle or based on the teaching of a first generation, you know, apostle or close companion of the apostles. 
universal acceptance. In other words, all major Christian uh, communities accepted it very quickly. Liturgical use, did they use it in their public services? And consistent message, it contains a theological perspective complementary to other scripture. If they found writings that were inconsistent with what had been accepted up until then, they couldn't be God's word. The current New Testament books, the 26 books that you have, were all used quickly in the church, and they were all officially canonized, I believe, in the early 4th century. So your Bible has great historic acceptance. The Bible in front of you, that is. But what about the books not in your Bible? You know, what about you know, the Da Vinci Code? Is there stuff out there that is in competition with the Bible that has that sort of been kept from us and overlooked? Well, there's three words I want to introduce to you. The Apocrypha, the Pseudepigrapha, and the Gnostic Gospels. The Apocrypha, the Pseudepigrapha, and the Gnostic Gospels. First, the Apocrypha. These are writings... Uh, that remained out of the canon due to questionable authenticity, not written by an apostle or early Christian leader, or authority. The term is broader than the simple difference between Catholic and Protestant Bibles. In fact, I believe there's more apocryphal books than just in the Catholic Bible as well. I think it's a broader term than that. These books were rejected in the Hebrew Bible so, you know, some of these books were written before Jesus, and they were not included in the Hebrew Bible because they were written in Greek, and after Old Testament Jews believed the inspiration of the Old Testament had ceased. They believed when Ezra came back, that's the end of the Old Testament. Nothing more should happen after that. So they weren't included. These books do not claim internally to be God's word. They don't claim inspiration. They were not accepted by Jews or early Christians as a part of the Bible. They teach things that are contradictory to other books in the Bible. And also, and this is actually quite important, they're not generally quoted in the New Testament by the apostles. So they don't have the marks of being Scripture. Now let me give you a little information about that. These didn't make the cut, but I'm going to... A few things that for some of you have Catholic backgrounds. I married a Catholic girl. Uh, many of you have Catholic backgrounds. You'll find some of these books in your Catholic Bible. The Doctrine of Purgatory comes from 2 Maccabees 12 where it says this, 2,000 pieces of silver were sent to Jerusalem for a sin offering, whereupon he made reconciliation for the dead that they might be delivered from sin. So here's a statement in the Apocrypha that giving a certain amount of money can pull people out of purgatory. All right? Salvation by works, Ecclesiasticus 3.30. Water will clench a flaming fire and alms makes atonement for sin. Tobit. 12, it's better to give alms than to lay up gold, for alms doth deliver from death and shall purge away all sin. So these people believe that a certain amount of good works could sort of undo sin. You could sort of earn your way to heaven. Magic, Tobit, 6, if the devil or an evil spirit troubles anyone, they can be driven away by making a smoke of the liver, heart, and gall of a fish, and the devil will smell it and flee away and never come again anymore. They forgot the garlic, which is my personal recipe. You know, I, all that other stuff plus a little garlic. And, you, you know, you get that lid on fire and the devil will be... You know, this is the kind of stuff you see in Halloween movies, but it actually comes from the Apocrypha, all right? Didn't make the cut. Not the scriptures, not inspired. Mary's immaculate conception and the fact that she is without sin, never had a sin nature like you or I. 
Wisdom 8, and I was a witty child and received a good soul, and whereas I was more good, I came to a body undefiled. That's the Virgin Mary. Not just was she a virgin, she was not a sinner in Catholic theology. It comes from the Apocrypha. So that's the reason these books were not accepted. They did not have theology consistent with the rest of scriptures. The Pseudepigrapha, something I'm sure you've been talking about this week. The Pseudepigrapha, all right? The Pseudepigrapha, these books are written by people who attributed them to historical figures. And the word Pseudepigrapha basically means pseudo, false, Pigrapha, writing. So it's a false writing. But they're friendly to our faith. These aren't unfriendly books. They're not meant to be deceptive, but complementary. So it'd be like somebody writing in place of somebody else. They're honoring a figure from the past. So they're false writings, but they're, they're people who are like cheering on Christianity. In many cases, they're obvious by the date of the writing because they were written about 200 BC to 200 AD. But here are some of the pseudepigrapha. The Book of Enoch. All right, Enoch lived a long time ago, so if he's writing in about 100 BC, <laughs> he did pretty well. I don't know how he's pulling that one off from the, from the dead. The life of Adam and Eve. We don't have anything from Adam and Eve, but this is the life of Adam and Eve. It's nice to get their perspective. You know, the first time I saw her, by Adam. You know, I mean, it's interesting stuff. I did make that up. That was historical fiction. All right? All right. The Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs. We don't have the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, but somebody wrote in their place as though we do. When people recognize this, they're like, hey, these people are cheering on our faith, that's great, but they're not authentic. They're not coming from the people who claim to have written them. And that actually just gives less credibility when somebody does claim to write something if we allow them to be included. They didn't include them, it's not God's word. That's the pseudepigrapha. They're cheering on our faith, but they're false writers. And then the most dangerous group, the Gnostic Gospels. Now these were written by a group of people who hate our faith and were trying to undermine it in the early church world. So they were written as a reaction to Christianity in the second to fourth centuries. Now keep that in mind. Second to fourth centuries. These aren't eyewitnesses anymore. These are people who don't like Christianity. And so they also claim to be writers from the New Testament era but they're not for us. They're against us. They basically teach that salvation is not through Christ or the church's teachings or the church. They are inherently anti-Christian, yet they attribute their writings to, so here are some of the Gnostic Gospels. Gospel of Thomas. Thomas didn't write it. The Gospel of Jesus. Jesus didn't write it. The Gospel of Philip. The Gospel of Judas. The Gospel of Mary. None of these people wrote Gospels. The Gnostic Gospels are attributed to them to trick us. That's kind of like the Da Vinci Code. And that is the enemy. I don't mean Satan, I'm just saying. It's, it's the enemies of Christianity. It's human beings trying to undermine the early church and get these gospels out. The Old Testament, the New Testament, the Apocrypha, the Pseudepigrapha, the Gnostic Gospels, that's over 100 books. I think it's well over 100 books. And we've got 66. Did we get it right? I just want to close with a couple of thoughts. The books of the Bible have unique characteristics not found in others. There, there is a distinct difference if you're reading the scriptures and you start reading some of these other things I've mentioned and you also would recognize it. Internal claims to be from God, authored by a prophet or an apostle from an eyewitness perspective. The Bible is unique. Those recordings are unique. Second, both Jews and Christians were legitimately tough 
with rules for canonization. The, the, the Old Testament Jews and New Testament Christians were, were brutal. They wanted to make sure that they really had the word of God, so they made sure it was from an eyewitness, from an apostle or a prophet, and they accepted uh, it as, as, a, as a group of godly people if they really believed it was from God. And if they didn't, they didn't. They made sure it was unified with other writings up to that point. What is left to us is a unified message of history and salvation. And I say history and salvation because the history is accurate. Archaeology just keeps affirming it over and over and over. It's both a salvation book and it's a history book. From creation to the end. Other religions actually comment on that. There's nothing else like Christianity where you really have this record from creation to the end of time of God's activity. Now there's all these arguments about all the contradictions that are in the Bible and everything. and You know, if there were all the contradictions in the Bible that stated, I, I wouldn't be a Christian. Usually they're easily figured out. Here, here's a contradiction according to some. Well, you look at the Gospels and you see when Jesus rose from the dead, none of the Gospel writers seem to agree on it. You've got Matthew saying that there's these three or four women who are at the tomb. Mark says there's these three or four women and they're different. Luke says something else. John just talks about the foot race between himself and another apostle to get to the tomb. I don't know what his deal is. A little narcissism there. Although he admitted he lost, I think, in that foot race. You know, those are all contradictions. No, they're not contradictions. It's just four people talking about what they saw, and you have to put all the stories together. It'd be like me going on a fishing trip. If I go on a fishing trip, do you think I'm going to talk about the fish Aaron caught? No. It doesn't matter. I'm talking about the fish I caught, and I'm adding six inches. No, I'm not. But I'm talking about the fish I caught. I might, I might mention that Aaron was there, and I might mention that somebody else was there, but I'm going to describe it from my perspective. He's going to write a different book. None of us are going to not tell the truth. You just have to put all our stories together to get the full truth. The Bible is not full of contradictions. It's perfectly accurate history. No books from the era of eyewitnesses radically contradict the Bible. Now, I'm sure somebody would disagree with me on this because not all of the Jews accepted Jesus as Messiah and believed in his resurrection. But my point is this. The other books outside of the Bible that I'm talking about, the Pseudepigrapha, the Apocrypha, the Gnostic Gospels, etc. The Gnostic Gospels are written after the eyewitnesses are all dead. It's, it's second to fourth century. The Apocrypha are both before and after Jesus. Uh, the pseudepigrapha are complementary. You don't have a bunch of stuff written in 30, 40, 50, 60 AD saying none of this is true. People are saying none of it's true are saying it after all the eyewitnesses are dead. And finally, be careful about your views on apostles and prophets today. Now, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to be mad at me before we close, as I always like to do. This really concerns me. And there are parts of Christianity that really need to, to be a little more careful with their language about here, about this. The definition of a cult in the world today typically is they often have a wrong view of Jesus, something about his divinity or something is amiss. They often will have some sort of way you can work yourself uh, into heaven, so a work salvation. And they have another Bible. They've always got another piece of literature written by somebody they consider to be a prophet or a modern-day apostle, okay? I don't think I've said anything controversial yet. That's the definition of a cult. They've got another Bible, different view of Jesus, and another way to heaven. Yet, 
even in Christendom, even in Christianity, even in evangelical Christianity, there's a lot of people running around claiming to be prophets and apostles. And I do not like that. There's a level of arrogance in that that I shudder at. Because a prophet in the Bible, when they got something wrong in the Old Testament, you were supposed to like stone them to death. It was some pretty serious stuff. There was a group of apostles that founded the early church. I don't think we want to use those words so casually and just say there's a bunch of church leaders that are prophets and apostles because when that prophet says something, should we be putting that in the Bible? So let's be really careful with that language and honor what has happened throughout history. And there's also a little bit of a warning at the end of the Bible, basically, that says this. And I will close with this, if you believe me, that I will close with this ever. All right. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which were written in this book. The Bible's pretty clear. Don't be trying to add on to this thing here. God has spoken. And I get a little concerned when people kind of think that they have permission to do that. Now, I think it's also possible that that is just about the book of Revelation, not about the whole Bible, in fairness. But it's still a stern warning. Be careful when you think you speak for God. I do not come here on Sunday mornings and say, God told me to tell you this, because I just don't think I'm a good enough human being to know that. And I get real concerned when people in my position talk like that. So, be careful about your views on apostles and prophets today. Now, having said that, I'll try to take a little brighter tone into the ending here, okay? Many, many years ago, when I was dating a, a woman named Dee Dee Savage, that was her maiden name. My kids say I should have taken her name <laughs> instead of tortured them with brush auber. Deanna Savage. There was a point at which I, I bought, you know, a symbol of my love, which today she thinks is a real diamond. <laughs> because a diamond and a cubic zirconium do appear to be exactly the same thing. And most women with the naked eye cannot tell the difference. And men know this, of course. But what I want to say is this. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out the difference between a diamond and a cubic zirconium. All it takes probably is a half an hour with a jeweler and the same lens that he or she is able to look through. You don't have to go to like jewelry school for four years to know the difference between a diamond and a fake. It's not that hard. You just need the right lens. When it comes to knowing what is the Bible or not, Yes, I told you a lot of stuff, some of which you may not have heard before. I'm just telling you, it's not hard to tell the difference. And it wasn't that hard in history to tell the difference. They just had to apply the right lens. Was it written by somebody who was there, an apostle or a prophet? Was it accepted quickly as they were an eyewitness and they had credibility and so the faith community accepted it? Did it have the characteristics of God's word? Did it have a unity with what was written before? And when it did, it's like, okay, this is not rocket science. I can tell what's real. I can tell what's fake. And yes, she does have a real diamond because some of you haven't moved on from that comment. All right, some of you are still stuck there. That poor woman. Okay, that's another issue. I agree with you, that poor woman for being saddled with me, but that's a whole nother issue, a whole nother issue. She does have a real diamond. You can tell the difference too. 
You don't have to be a great theologian or a rocket science. If you were in the early church, if you were in ancient Israel, you could tell the difference too. We have God's word. If we get to heaven and find out we missed by one book and Song of Solomon and its comments about female body parts wasn't supposed to be in here, I'm going to be okay with that. I'm going to be okay with that. It was good entertainment for me. If we get to heaven and find out the book of Esther really wasn't supposed to be in here, I'm okay with that. It's good Jewish history. There's nothing missing in any significant way. You have the story of God. We're going to stand and the worship team's going to come up and as they do, uh, after I pray, they're going to lead us in a final song and we're going to also have prayer team members come to the front and if you have a prayer request for yourself or a friend, uh, just feel free to come down and pray with them uh, as we sing that last song. really encourage you to do that. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for The fact that throughout history, people have been so careful to make sure that your word has been been recognized, authenticated, preserved as it was written, and that it is the history of your activity in our lives and in this world. And when we know that, we can have great confidence that we can know you and follow you with certainty. I pray for so many that we all know who struggle with this, whether it's family members or friends or whole generations of young people or people in other countries that may not have much access to your word. God, we pray that around this whole world, your word would stand out as as a beacon of light, that people would have access to it, that people would understand its credibility, and that you would bring a greater awareness that you would defend yourself through your church, through people who know you, so that all people can come to a knowledge of the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again, and God bless you.